God goes to great lengths to rescue lost and hurting people. That's what the story is all about. The story of the Bible, God's great love affair with humanity. There's this crazy story at the beginning of the Bible. We have Adam and Eve, and they're in the Garden of Eden. And everything in this garden is great. It's exactly as it should be, except there's this one tree that they're told by God not to eat from because it's dangerous and it will kill them. So that's it. Uh, Avoid this fruit tree and we're fine. Right. It seems pretty simple. But in this garden, there's a snake. And it starts telling a different story. It says that if you eat of this tree, it's not going to kill you. In fact, it's going to make you become like God. And Adam and Eve, they believe the snake and they eat the fruit. And because of this, the goodness of the garden is tragically lost and evil and death enters into God's good world. Now, why is there a talking snake in the garden? I mean, this thing is a problem. Yeah, it's very strange. And even more strange is the fact that the Bible doesn't say why or how this thing even got there. It just presents the snake as this creature who's in rebellion against God and that wants to get other people to doubt God's goodness and lead them on a path towards death. And so whatever this snake is, it's the source of evil that pervades our world and our lives even still today. But there is some hope because right here in the story, God makes this really interesting promise to Adam and Eve. That someone is going to come in the future, a son of Eve. And this guy's going to come and he's going to crush the serpent's head and destroy evil at its source. However, during this battle, the serpent is going to bite this guy's heel. So it's like a mutual destruction. Yeah, it's this very strange but beautiful promise. And it's just left hanging there until the next key moment in the story when God singles out this guy named Abraham and says that through his family, goodness and blessing is going to be restored back to all of the nations of the world. And as we follow this family, we get to one of Abraham's great grandsons, this guy named Judah. And he receives this promise that a king is going to come from his line and that the whole world's going to follow this king and he's going to bring peace and harmony and there'll be lots of food and wine and milk and vineyards and it's going to be awesome. The first king that we meet from the line of Judah is a guy named King David. And he's a hero. Maybe he is the snake crusher. But it turns out that David is infected with the same evil as the rest of humanity. He never crushes the snake, just the opposite. However, God makes a promise to David that this king is going to eventually come from his line. But as you go on in the story, one by one, each generation of his sons, they're just total chumps. They give in to the snake, they choose evil, they go after money and sex and power and following other gods. Things get so bad that they run the nation of Israel right into the ground and the big bad empire of Babylon just takes them out. And so now there are no more kings to even fulfill this promise. So it seems like the whole plan is lost. But during these dark days, there's this crazy group of guys called prophets. And they just kept talking about this coming king and reminding us of the promise that he'll come, he'll defeat evil, he'll restore the garden. Now, one specific prophet, Isaiah, he tells us more about why this king is bitten. Isaiah says that the promised king receives this wound because of humanity's evil, and then it kills him. But then all of a sudden he comes back, and Isaiah says it's because he suffered this wound that he can now become a source of healing to other people. But the Old Testament ends, and the snake-crushing king that everyone's been talking about never shows up. And this is why when the New Testament begins, it introduces us to Jesus of Nazareth, 
not as some random guy, but as someone who comes to fulfill these specific ancient promises. Yeah, we learn that he's from the line of David, Judah, and Abraham. And he goes around Israel announcing that the goodness of God's kingdom is here now. And he begins confronting the effects of evil on people by healing them, by forgiving them of their sins and evil. Many people are now believing that this is, in fact, the promised king. But Jesus began telling his closest followers that he was going to become king and bring peace by taking the full effect of humanity's evil into himself. The fatal snake bite wound. Exactly. And so it seems like the serpent wins. And this story actually would be a tragedy except for what happens next. Jesus rises from the dead. And now Jesus has the power over evil and death for himself. And so the rest of the New Testament is then making this claim that Jesus's power over evil and death has now become available to us to begin confronting the effects of evil in our lives. But even still, death and evil are a real problem in our world all around us. And so the story of the Bible ends by describing this future day when Jesus comes back and he finishes the job. He destroys the snake once and for all and he restores the goodness of the garden here on earth. Welcome to the story, chapter 23, when Jesus begins his ministry. Today's message, I want to start with a question. It's an important question. What's your greatest need? What's your greatest need? This afternoon, this evening, uh, some people will have their greatest need uh, on a football field, right? So can I get a a shout-out for the 49ers? If you're a 49ers fan, you're hoping them to win, give a shout-out. Woo! (laughs) Okay. If you're a Chiefs fan and you want the Chiefs to win, give a shout out. Woo! If you don't care, give a shout out. (laughs) That's what happened in the first service. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. I'm just telling you, it's the way it is right here, right now. Okay, so anyway. Uh, this question uh, is addressing, like, there, uh, there's tons of needs, right? Some of you walked in here with relationship needs, financial needs. Uh, there's some type of uh, emotional need you might have. And, uh, and so we all are, are faced day to day with needs, some small, some large. But we're going to address the greatest need that every human has as we go through a few passages of Scripture in the Gospel of John. And so here is the central need of every human, to believe in Jesus. Now, uh, this word believe, pistuo, is the Greek word. Uh, it does not mean simply a mental assent, like I recognize that God exists. No, it's way beyond that. Uh, this word believe in the Bible means faith put in action. It means a trusting confidence that results in some type of decision making in what you understand. And, and the Gospel of John says this is why he wrote his gospel, his book about Jesus. He says that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and, believing, and that believing you may have life in his name. The word believe or its forms appear 98 times in the gospel alone. It is the prevailing word in the book of John is that we might believe in Jesus. And so this, this faith that we're supposed to have is, is, is the utmost uh, 
important thing to every human being. Now, consider John's day. Consider John's day. There were people who were demon-possessed. Actually, a lot of children were demon-possessed in John's day. One, we hear a story about this boy kept throwing himself into a burning fire, and his father had to rescue him. He was constantly trying to kill himself. Uh, There was immense hunger and poverty that existed in that century. There was a Roman government that put its neck, its foot on the neck of all the nations it conquered, and everyone had to pay massive amounts of tribute, giving their best to this oppressive empire. There was dysfunctional family issues. Yeah, believe it or not, there were families that were broken in that day. Can you believe that? All, uh, divorce was rampant. Women could not uh, divorce their husbands. Men could divorce their wives. And so uh, men would f- uh, just fragrantly divorce their wives. And, and it, was, it was terrible. It was, a, it was a, a terrible existence for women during that time. And so John gave his entire life to convince us to believe in Jesus so that we might have life in his name. Anybody need some life today? Yeah, did you walk in here going, I need a little life. Can you give me some life, preacher? Yeah, I can tell you where to find it, and it's in Jesus. And so th- this, this story that John tells, this account of Jesus' life, begins in a very unexpected place. It begins at a wedding celebration. Some of us had the opportunity to go to David and Katie's uh, uh, wedding uh, celebration reception yesterday, and they served breakfast. Now, just for any of you getting ready to get married or married in the future, this is a great idea, serving bacon at your banquet, all right? So there was this most delicious bacon, and it never ran out. They just, yeah, I would go get it, and they kept putting more there, and I was like, this is great. Well, there's this wedding in Jesus' day, and, uh, and the wine runs out. The, the, these celebrations lasted seven days. David and Katie, seven days of breakfast would be great. So seven days, and, and, and the wine ran out, right? And so this is where Jesus makes his first miracle, his first sign. In John chapter 2, he's going to save the hosts from great embarrassment. By hearing that, uh, wine has run out. His mother Mary says, Jesus... Do something about this. And so he looks over at these large clay pots that will hold 120 gallons total. And he says, uh, uh, fill the pots with water and they become wine. A cup of wine is taken to the head waiter. And here's what we read. The head waiter called the bridegroom and he said, hey, every man serves good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, when they're wasted, then he serves the poorer wine, right? But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So uh, you have to, you can't miss this because this is a big theme throughout the entire Bible that the best comes last. The best wine is served last at a wedding celebration. And so uh, this, if you were going to come up with uh, some superhero to uh, support some false religion. I don't think you would begin with such a story as this as your hero making more wine. This is an eyewitness account. And this story, you can't make this stuff up. This guy watched Jesus do this and they believed in him. Now more importantly, 
it points back to a prophecy 500 years earlier in the Old Testament from the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah says, he's looking forward to a future day. He says, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all the peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, the best wine, choice pieces with with marrow. So you got a big piece of meat and you got a bone to hold. This is why guys like to eat meat. We like a big leg of something roasted and barbecued and smoked, and that's right, right? And so uh, this, this, it will also come with a refined aged wine, and on this mountain he will swallow up, this is important, the covering which is over all the peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all the nations, he will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all the faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Anybody need the Lord to wipe away some tears from your eyes? Sometimes at communion, you're weeping. You don't even know why. Sometimes you do know why. Yet anybody here would like Jesus to come into your life and wipe away some of the sorrow? Anybody here would like to never go to a funeral again of someone you love? Anybody here never want to hear about another death of a child or, 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 or anybody that we know? Jesus is, uh, Isaiah is saying there's coming a time a Messiah is going to come and he's going to take care of all death and it's going to be one great big grand banquet. So for those of you who like to pick up a novel and you start reading and you kind of get interested in it and you go, I wonder if, wonder if my hero, wonder if this guy's going to live. And so you jump to the end of the book and you read the last chapter or the last couple chapters and you find out your guy's still living. And you're like, okay, I'll read it now because I know it's going to turn out the way I want it. And, and, and so this is what Jesus does. Jesus talks about the end event at the beginning of his ministry that, we, that this is going to culminate and a great banquet and celebration that there's going to be an end to all the suffering and there's going to be joy never-ending. Wine in the Bible is a symbol of great joy and, and, and what Jesus does at, the, at Canaan is, is he, he presents a sign that says the joy will never run out, the best is last. And this is going to begin in Jerusalem, Isaiah says, on a mountain. That's talking about Jerusalem. And God's going to swallow up all that's wrong and broken with this earth. And so this miracle of Jesus at Canaan foreshadows a great celebration in heaven. His miracle at Canaan foreshadows our future celebration. This is not all there is. You're going through some really bad stuff right now. This is not all there is. Life might be crushing you right now. This is not all there is. This, this, this moment in your life, these experiences that you're having right now, might seem like they never end. I'm telling you, they're going to end. It's all going to end for those who are in Jesus. It's all going to end in joy and celebration. This is not all there is. I say that at every funeral. I hope I'm convincing the people who are mourning the loss of their loved one, this is not all there is. I'm preaching. Are you listening? I'm having a good time. I hope you are too. Now look, what, where John takes us next is to the temple in Jerusalem. If you don't know anything about the Bible, there's this place, this city called Jerusalem. In the center of that city is a temple. And all male Jews were commanded to go to that temple three times a year on the three major feasts of the Jewish uh, people, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. 
And when they would come, they were to bring a sacrifice. But most of them didn't travel with the sacrifice. They bought one there. And so when uh, these Jewish men show up to uh, present a sacrifice for themselves and their family, uh, they go into the court of the Gentiles, and there are men who are selling animals so that you might sacrifice and fulfill your commitment to the Lord. Well, they had this racket going on. So they would jack up the price of the animals, very expensive. Or you might bring your own animal. Here's, you know, uh, little lammy lamikins, you know, perfect little lammy lamikins, one-year-old without defect. But there's a guy in cahoots with the money changers, a priest, and he goes, oh, nope, got a little spot right here behind the ear. This is a defect. Here, buy this one. And then you have to buy this one at a, at, a, at, a, at a higher rate. And then they take your lamb and they sell it to the next joker behind you. It's a big money racket. They made millions of dollars to fund the temple business. Herod got a cut out of it. Rome got a cut out of it. The money changers got a cut out of it. There was profiteering going, in, going on during the house, in the house of the Lord during worship. And Jesus walks in and he sees this and he's going to have none of it. None of it. So he looks around for some things that he can make a scourge, a whip, something to, 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 to spank the bottoms and the backsides of the money changers. And he begins to drive out. The, can you imagine this? Okay, so there's about, there's, in Jerusalem during those festivals, there's between a million and two million people. Let's say there's, let's just say, let's pick a low number, 200,000 people going in, inside, in and out of the temple and all the surroundings there, you know, uh, or the temple areas, you know, all these people moving around. And Jesus is whipping tail and people are running away going, what's going on? And so I just want to throw this meme up here. When someone says, what would Jesus do? Remember, flipping over tables and chasing people with a whip is within the realm of possibilities, right? Can I get a parent to clap right now? A coach, a teacher, right? Yeah, this is, this is within the realm of possibilities. I might whip your tail if you don't do what you need to do, right? And so I'm just saying, I'm not, I'm not telling you how to discipline your kids or, your, or I don't want any stories about, guess what happened in the school system this past week, uh, you know, next week. But anyway, here's what I'm saying is that, that, that Jesus is really angry. Anger is not a sin. You should get angry about things that are injustices of people. And Jesus is angry. God's angry. And he's, he's, he's driving out these people. And so the temple symbolizes a place where heaven and earth overlap. It's a place where God's presence is. In the temple, there was this small room. The temple size, it was 30 by 30 by 30, this little cubicle. And there was no lamp in there, but it was illuminated by the Shekinah glory of God, and this glory would rest upon, upon that building, and everyone knew that God was present. And man would show up, and man would have to bring a sacrifice to come and, and be part of the worship service. Do you hear me? You, to, to, to be able to worship God, there has to be a sacrifice. You can't come empty-handed because you're broken with sin, just like I am. You have to show up with a sacrifice, and Jesus is our sacrifice, and that's why we can come before the Lord and worship him because jesus has made it possible they're coming with their animals they're they're trying to worship the lord and so here's here's the thing the temple is a foothold that god has on the earth he's here he's there he's he, he makes himself known god has not given up on a broken world the temple represents god's presence and so Jesus has cleared the temple, and he lets everyone know, I haven't given up on the world. 
I haven't given up on you. I'm not going to tolerate this kind of behavior. And then he says these words. Destroy this temple, talking about himself, and in three days I will raise it up. Well, we know he's foreshadowing his death on a cross. We know he's foreshadowing his resurrection. He says it right at the beginning of his ministry. His sacrificial death is going to make it possible that we can uh, deal with our biggest need. And what is your biggest need? Your sin. That has to be dealt with. Our wrongdoing has to be dealt with. And Jesus says, I've come to deal with that. Jesus' actions and his words at the temple declare God has not abandoned us. You might feel that way. You might feel abandoned. No matter how bad it gets, God has not abandoned you. No matter how frustrated you are with your life situation, God has not abandoned you. No matter what they have done to you, because it might be really bad, God has not abandoned you. God has not moved. No matter what has happened, how big your hurt is, how big your mess up is, how big your sin is, how big your betrayal was, how, what prom night was like, whatever that, whatever that moment is that you look back with guilt and shame, God has not abandoned you. I'm preaching. Are you listening? All right, come on now. Jesus has come to deal with our greatest need, our sin, our past, our pain, our failures. And John says this. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not bestuo. He was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. I wonder why Jesus was not entrusting himself to the money changers. Because when he got that scourge out and he ended their business day and embarrassed them, they all said, we're going to kill you. No, they really said that in their head. They probably had a little huddle somewhere and they said, how do we kill this guy? We've just lost four or five million dollars today. We're taking him out. And so Jesus was believed. They believed in Jesus, some of the people, but Jesus didn't believe in them yet. Right? And he had good reason to. Next, John is going to present to us the gospel sandwich, I'm going to call it. All right? Some of you are already hungry, and here I am talking about food. There's a top slice of bread. We're going to call him Nicodemus. And there's a bottom slice of bread. She's a woman at the well. And right in the middle is a verse that you all probably have heard. And right in the middle is the meat of the sandwich. Right? Where's the beef? Right? right here it is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What John does in this most highly structured piece of literature we call the Gospel of John is that he tells two stories. He tells a story of a religious man who's at the top of the social ladder, and he tells a story of a woman who's at the very bottom of the social ladder. And right in the middle of these two stories, he places this awesome truth that we should teach to our children, memorize it, tattoo it on your neighbor's forehead, all of these things. And so in this story, we begin with Nicodemus. Now, who was Nicodemus? Nicodemus went to church every Sunday, every Wednesday night. Nicodemus wore nice clothes. He didn't cuss or chew or smoke or run with girls that do and all that kind of stuff. Nicodemus was the kind of guy that he, 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 he knew the law and he would try to do it all right. Nicodemus was the kind of guy that you would, you, would want your, you would want this guy to teach your kids at school. 
Because he's a righteous guy and he knows the law and he's trying to do the right thing. Nicodemus, right, he, he represents the, the, the highest view that a Jew would have of any type of person, a religious moral man. But I've got good news. Jesus came to save Christians too. And he comes to save Nicodemus. Some of you didn't catch that. But anyway, John is, is saying there's this man who is morally great, probably a better moral person than anyone here. I hope I didn't offend you, but I'm trying. So, so anyway, Nicodemus, is, he represents the very highest state of a, of, a, of, a, of a holy person. But guess what his greatest need is? To believe in Jesus. Because on your best day, you can't save yourself. I know you try eye to eye too. When you do, stop and pray and ask God to forgive you for trying to perform so well that he will save you. I don't say, I'm not saying that you shouldn't try to do the right thing. What I am saying is that without the very perfect life of Jesus wrapped around you, you cannot enter heaven. And this is what Nicodemus and this is what the rest of Jews are trying to do. They're trying to, they're trying to perform for God so God will accept them. Have you ever done that? All right, going to get a witness. Anybody want to say amen? Anybody want to be truthful? All right, all right. So here, here's what I'm saying. Anytime love is based on performance, anytime love is a response of someone doing the right thing, it becomes a contract, contractual love. It ceases to be love. See, God's love for us is based on a covenant. Even when we mess up for decades, God says, I'm not done with you. I can take care of this. So Nicodemus has this in his mind that if, 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 if he is just doing the right thing, then he's right with God. So he has this clandestine meeting with Jesus. And here's what we read in John 3. Now there was this man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs unless God is with him. So Nicodemus approaches God at night. Right? He approaches Jesus with accolades. You're special. He approaches Jesus politicking. Because he's trying to find out what side Jesus is on. Jesus isn't on any political side. Jesus has come to take over, right? Jesus is, he's setting up a new kingdom. And his kingdom is going to outlast their government and all the rest. And so, so Nicodemus comes in and he's, he's giving him these, these, these compliments. He, he's giving to him, uh, you know, we recognize you're a great teacher. And you know what Jesus' response is? Hey, Nick, get a life. That's what he says. Literally, that's what he says. He says, Jesus answered him and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nick, you're dead. You're dead inside. Your best day can't make you alive. Nick, you need a new life. Nick, get a life. And so the word here, born again, geneo, is the Greek word for born. Uh, uh, Anatho is the word for again. And so uh, it essentially means born from above. This is a nuanced Greek word in the text. John's going to use this word again a number of times, and he's going to refer to this word again as born from again from above. And so he, he says, you have to have supernatural help, Nick, to get right with the Lord. Now, Nick mistakenly thinks that Jesus is talking about natural birth. So Jesus, like you parents... 
say the exact same thing you said five seconds ago again. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, my guess is there are some here today, some who are watching one day, some who will listen to this one day, who are in Nick's camp. In other words, you're a pretty morally good person. You've tried to do the right thing most of your life. Uh, You're an educated person, maybe a self-made person. Uh, You're a good talker, a nice dresser. You know, you you, you drink the right kind of coffee. (laughs) Gallons. Uh, And you think, man, you know, I'm not doing too bad. I hope Jesus can kind of, you know, fix up my life. I had a little problem, you know, get a little sad sometimes. And Jesus says, you're dead. You're dead. You need new life. You need to be born from above. Now, what... What Jesus is referring to is a number of Old Testament scriptures, but one that stands out in my mind is found in the book of Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel 36, 25, we read this. Hundreds of years before Jesus came, we read Ezekiel hoping for a new heart. He says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean, and I will cleanse you from all your unfilthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, and I will put new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a new heart of flesh. I'll take out that stone that's dead, and I'll give you a new heart. And I will put my spirit within you and, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe all my ordinances. You know why you can't live for Jesus the way you want to live for Jesus? It's because you're not relying on the spirit. You're not inviting the spirit into your everyday moments. You're not inviting the spirit in through worship music. You're not asking the spirit to help you each and every day. God says, I'll give you my spirit, and he will do the heavy lifting to what you need to do to follow my son. I'll give you a new heart. I'll give you a new spirit. Now, what's humankind's biggest need? A heart transplant. What's the biggest need of a dead person? Life. And Jesus says, I'm the one bringing it. I'm bringing life. Now, numerically... Speaking, do you know what follows Ezekiel chapter 36? Ezekiel 37. You came to learn something at church? I got you right there. 37 follows 36. And in Ezekiel 37 is the story of the valley of dry bones. Ezekiel goes out to a desert, an arid place, and there are these bones that have nothing on them. They're bleached white and he watches God reconstruct them with all the parts and they stand up and here's what Ezekiel sees in this next story is that there is this completely dead people that's us outside of Jesus and Jesus comes in and makes you all born anew born again born from above And this is what Jesus and his disciples go about doing throughout the ministry. As a matter of fact, when Jesus leaves Nicodemus, he and his disciples do exactly that. They go out preaching the kingdom and giving people new life. We read about this in John 3.22. And after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. And there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John was uh, uh, John also was baptizing near An- uh, Anon, near Salem, because there was much water there, and the people were coming and were being baptized. The Jordan River is generally a raging little creek, but there are a couple places where it spreads out, where, the, where you can gradually walk into deep water and be baptized, and that's where Jesus went. Have you been immersed into Jesus Christ? I'm just asking. 
The water's warm. The towels are there. Would you like to be baptized into Jesus today? Would you like to have his spirit enter into your heart and your world? Would you like to be born again today? It's possible. Do you, you hear what I'm saying? The sermon is not over yet. We're just halfway through. Some of you are looking for the ending. We're not there yet. I'm telling you that you could be born again today. It's good news. This is so good news. I'm going to sleep good tonight. So, so John watches Jesus leave there and go north through Samaria, through the land of the dreaded half-breed Samaritan. And they were looked down upon by a lot of people, but especially the Jews. And this Jew, Jesus, walks right through their center of town, Sychar, and he sits down at a well and he meets a woman, a Samaritan woman. We don't get her name. One day she's going to say, hey, I got a name. And we're going to say, hey, Samaritan woman, she's going to, I have a name, it's Sally. You know, okay, Sally, well, now we know, right? But, uh, <clears throat> but anyway, Jesus stops at the well to get a drink because he's thirsty. It's the middle of the day. And, and, and this woman of Samaria comes to draw water there, and Jesus says, give me a drink. Now, she was amazed that Jesus would talk to her. First of all, everyone knows she's an outcast because there's only two people at the well in the middle of the day, the outcasts and a Jew because they don't want to hang out with Samaritans. Here we got Jesus and a Samaritan woman at the well in the middle of the day. And she's amazed that this Jew would talk to her. And she's a woman and he's a man. And in those days and times, men did not talk to women in public unless they were married. And so this woman who's been totally oppressed by the men in her life, because they've all divorced her, and this one she's with at that time won't marry her, uh, Jesus is speaking to her. And he starts the conversation out with a common need, a common understanding that water is life in an arid climate, and he needs water. But what he really wants to do is talk to her about her biggest need, eternal life. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And so like, like Nicodemus, she doesn't catch it right off the bat, he's she go, we, were we talking about what? Living? What are you talking about? And so Jesus says it again with more emphatic in 13 and 14. Everyone who drinks this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give shall never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And so what Jesus is saying clearly to her is he's saying, I am your greatest need meter. I am the water of a life you must drink from my well. And so here's the point. Jesus declares that everyone has a thirst that is impossible to quench unless you drink from the well of living water. So I, I, I don't know what you call your well. Some of you call it your mind. Some of you call it your soul. Some of you call it your spirit. Whatever you call that well where your thoughts and emotions and where you go to run and hide or where you go for, uh, you know, solace, your well, right? Jesus says, you need a new well. You can't put enough bleach in your well to clean it up. You can't clean up your well. You have to have the well that I give you because the pollution in our souls goes way down and way back. And we need someone to come in and go, 
I'm going to help you start all over. Let's drill a brand new well. And let me do it. And let me supply the water. And so Christ says to this woman, I'm the only one that can quench this deep thirst, this deep thirst that you have. In the, in the ancient Near East, water meant life. And Jesus is saying, I'm the only one that can bring life. I'm your greatest, I, I, I'm your greatest solution to your greatest need. So we all thirst for at least three things. You might be thirsty right now. You're like, man, that coffee has dried me out. Well, I'm thinking spiritual things here right for a moment. First of all, we all thirst for purpose. We do. So if you don't believe in God, or if you say, ah, I don't know that we can be sure that there is a God, then you are an accident that has no purpose. And no amount of structure that you put in your life can answer a central need that you have, and that's purpose and why you're here. Why am I here? I don't know why I'm here. Well, you can find out that you're a child of God, that God has a purpose called His kingdom that's bringing renewal to everything around us, and you're not an accident, and you can come to feel like your life does have purpose. The second thing we all thirst for is love. Anybody need some love here? Honey, did anybody talk to you after the service? All kinds of people. I said in the first service, I said, I like my wife to cuddle over on me. We're watching TV at night a little bit, you know. And I say, hey, could you scratch my head? And, you know, can you, can you rub close to me? You know, I don't smell good, but you do. You know, like I say all those things. I need a little love, right? We all need a little love, right? But the deepest need that we have for love can't be met by another human. It can only be met by Jesus Christ. Because even when we have the best marriage or the best friend or the best children, we still need someone to reach down into that dark spot on our heart and tell us, I still love you even though you did that, even though you portrayed them, even though you said that, even though you spent that on this, even though what you saw on the screen, I still love you. We are dysfunctional adults. If you're looking for a perfect church, please go somewhere else. It's not here. We're a dysfunctional family. We're being remade in the likeness of Jesus. <laughs> I'm trying to preach the crowd down, right? Uh, <laughs> we have major sin issues. Do we not? Are you not still lusting? Are you not still selfish? Are you not still pride-filled? Are you not still holding grudges? We have problems. Sometimes those problems come from way back when someone did something against us or something they should have been there and they weren't. But Jesus says, I'll bring the love that you never have. Could there actually be a father who's always available, who's always perfect, who's always patient, who's always complete in his understanding, who's always seeking to nurture his children? Could there be a father like that? There is. God the Father and his son Jesus. And if you want to meet the father, you've got to know the son. And the son will take your hand and put it in the hand of the father. This is good news. We thirst for peace. Anybody need some peace today? Your life's turmoil. Anybody need some peace today? I do. I'm kind of upset about some things. I'm kind of worried about some things. I'm unsettled about some things in my life and other people. I, I need some peace. Well, look, Jesus says, I'll offer you peace. That no matter what happens, Romans 8, 28, for all things work to the good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. I'll bring it on no matter what you're going through, no matter how bad it is, no matter how bad you mess I can bring you some peace from the guilt and the shame of what you did on prom night. 
of what you said to your wife last night, of how you kicked your dog this morning, of how you didn't feed the cat. <laughs> I don't have any cats. All of us need peace, folks. And I'm telling you right now that there is only one eternal source for peace. You can drown it and drink or smoke it and whatever and try to think, oh, this will bring you. But it will not bring you lasting peace. Thank you for joining us. You can find us on the web at cornerstonechatham.org.